Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady for blessing us in worship. We welcome the ladies back as well from their woman's retreat at the Ark Encounter this week. The glowing reports that have been coming back have been so wonderful and encouraging. And in that same vein, we have a very exciting announcement coming next week for the women's ministry at HHBC. So be sure to be here for that. Know this, beloved, we have one aim, to preach Christ and Him crucified. We are determined to know nothing else among you but this. Any other draw or method as the church of Jesus Christ is a farce and a fraud. It's a slander to truth. We have nothing to add or take away from the truth which is held in our hands. That Christ came into the world to redeem sinners, of whom I am chief. We are gathered together to hear the most wonderful and the most terrible news of the gospel again and again. The word gospel means good news, wonderful news, and indeed it is. It is good news to those who are being saved. But the same gospel declares that there will come a day where he will judge the world in righteousness, that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That which is done in secret will be declared from the rooftops, for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open." Beloved, the times are too perilous and the stakes far too high for anything less than the pure gospel, the pure word delivered once and for all to the saints. These are not times for weak men or silly women playing footsie with their faith. In the time it will take to deliver this sermon, approximately 7,000 people will breathe their last with the vast, vast majority opening their eyes in eternal torment. As God's judgment upon his world increases, that number will only rise. It's very simple. Sin brings forth death. Whether divinely executed or simply giving over to the consequences of their choices, as sin increases, death increases in every way. These are serious times. And yes, we are joyful warriors, but we are warriors just the same. And the weapons of our, of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, Paul tells the Corinthians. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul tells the Ephesians. Beloved, these are times for serious Christians. These are the days in which you have been placed for his purposes to accomplish the good works that he has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Let us stop wasting our time and polluting our mind. Get about the Father's business. We have a job to do. Never have we lived in such an age where those who profess with their Christ with their mouth believe that they can hold Christ in one hand and the world in the other. That is a fool's errand and a losing proposition, and I'll tell you why. If you truly are a follower of Christ, he will not share the throne of your heart with your chosen idol. He will remove it from your life 
and he'll crush it to dust. He loves his children, so he is purifying and chastening his children. If you are his, he'll not long suffer you to hold the world in your hand. If you hang on to the world, it will be as the man who is thrown over the side of a ship, clinging to a chest of the finest jewels, the weight of which sinks him to the bottom. If he would but let go, he would be saved. These are serious times. Times for laying aside the double-mindedness that cripples our walk and that puts us on dangerous paths. If the Lord could allow us to see for one moment that which is unseen in this world, that which is all around us even as we speak, we would be instantly sobered. We would not play around with the world. We would not play with the fires that desire to consume us, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life that are not only born and bred in fallen hearts, but are given speed and direction by demonic influence. Get serious. Your enemy is. But beloved, don't confuse seriousness with joy. The most sober-minded, serious Christians I know are also the most joyful. Joy is one of the weapons of our warfare. We are equipped with joy, and it is powerful. So let us wield that joy, that patience, that peace, that strength, that pure love upon one another, that undeserved forgiveness upon one another. Give it all lavishly. Freely you have received from God. Freely give it to all around you. When you rise up and when you lie down, pray, sing, make melodies in your heart, singing psalms, read your Bible that you might know how to answer the foolishness of our age and might be equipped to stand against the flaming arrows of the enemy. This is how we battle. Joyful warriors, equipped and fearless because of the confidence that we have in God and his word that we have seen him perform time and again in our lives. He has never let us down. He has never left us to wander. So go forth in that spirit, saints. There is work to be done. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning we will be completing... Our three-part series on the faith of a father here in the ninth chapter of Mark. I pray it has been a challenge and a blessing to you. Our scene began in verse 14 with Jesus, Peter, James, and John having descended the mountain, just experiencing the joy and the glory of the transfiguration upon Mount Hermon and the coming upon of a large crowd. We saw the disciples withering there under a verbal assault from the scribes. The disciples' heads are hung in shame as they've been unable to cast out the demon possessing the boy in our scene. This is a public failure on the part of the disciples. And the, and the scribes are no doubt as getting as much mileage out of this failure as possible. What a chance to discredit Jesus. Look at what his followers could not do. But don't these scribes make the age-old mistake of judging Jesus because of the failures of those who follow him. Rejecting the Messiah because those who name his name do not reflect what he claims. We were reminded last week that men will always let you down. Those who name the name of Christ will let you down. Our eyes must be fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. He will never let you down. 
He is the rock, the firm foundation. Well, thankfully, the father in our scene did not reject Jesus because the disciples were ineffective and weak. His eyes were fixed upon Jesus, not upon any man. So with Jesus having now come upon this quagmire of a scene with the large crowd and the heckling scribes and the failed disciples, we also have present the father, the father of the boy who was possessed by the demon. And we took great pains last week to bring you along into the life of this family. The awful existence that they led having a boy afflicted with this condition. Being ostracized by the community, thought of being in sin or cursed because of this possession. God is obviously judging you. That was common thought in ancient Israel. Any sickness or hardship was a result of faith or a lack of faith or that you were in sin. How familiar does that sound from the heretical word faith movements of today? You don't have what you have because of a lack of faith, because you're in sin. This possessed boy would have no friends to play with. His extended family would have disowned them because they'd be guilty by association. That's just the social consequences. But what about the daily fear and uncertainty that they lived under? That would be unthinkable to us. We know that in great violence, in unpredictable violence, this demon would slam the boy to the ground, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, becoming rigid. Scripture records that it made the boy both deaf and mute, and that it would often throw him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. This father, this family lived every day waiting for a demon to finally finish off his little boy. Imagine, imagine. But as we reflected last week, this demon could not kill this boy. Dry as he could with all of his might, all the forces of hell could not take this child's life. And that is remarkable because we see demonic influence cause the deaths of millions. Not here. In verse 20, as the demon saw Jesus, he went for one final hurrah, trying violently to finish off the boy once and for all. And the demon could not. Just as declared with the blind man in the gospel of John, this demonic possession was allowed. Why? That the works of God might be displayed in him. There is a plan. There is a plan. It will not only serve to instruct the disciples who will never forget this lesson, but this pain, this suffering, this agony has driven this father to the feet of his Savior. In a spirit of humility, in a posture of worship, and in an intensity of desperation. We begin seeing the beautiful ingredients of faith. The green shoots of faith pushing up to the ground, fertilized and watered by the pain of his son's condition. While Jesus has harshly rebuked his disciples back in verse 19, he turns in great tenderness toward this father. Behold our Jesus, the lion and the lamb. He asked the father, how long has this been going on? And here in this question to the Father, we get a beautiful look at who Jesus is, at the heart of Jesus. Of course, Jesus knows everything there is to know about this man. 
and his boy. They were created by him and for him and through him. Every hair on their head is numbered. He knows them better than they know themselves. He's not asking this question to obtain information. Jesus is a deeply compassionate person. And he asked the father how long this has been going on in verse 21 because he desires to bear the father's burden with him. Unburden your heart on me. He desires to come alongside the father in comfort. What a magnificent savior. That's your savior. That Savior is right at this very moment seated at the right hand of God, praying and interceding for you. What a joy. Even so, Paul tells us in Romans that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, that we are to weep with those who weep. And so we see Jesus enter into this man's pain. Still, the faith of this father was not perfect, was it? It wasn't perfect. He had an understanding at this point of what Jesus could do. He knew what Jesus could do. Jesus' fame had spread like wildfire. But it was only now, in this moment of heart contact with his Savior, of seeing a compassion in his life that had never known compassion, of experiencing mercy where there was no mercy, of love where there was no love. Jesus was all of those things standing right in front of him. And in that moment of realization where his faith is brought over the Rubicon, passing from head knowledge to heart knowledge, he's overwhelmed. And he's overcome by the realization of who Jesus is and the inadequacy of his faith. And he cries out with one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's what happens when you encounter the Lord of glory. The light shows every stain. The light shows all the dirt like the sunlight shows all of the dust. When someone is truly born again, one of the hallmarks of that is being struck by our overwhelming inadequacy against the light of his amazing beauty. Which means we must ask ourselves, we must ask ourselves, have we trembled before a holy God? Before God can use a man or a woman, he will break them. Broken of our self-sufficiency, broken of our independence, broken of every thought that I came on my own or that I can walk this walk of faith on my own. Newsflash, you didn't come to Christ on your own and you can't walk it alone. You didn't start it and you won't finish it. It is he who began it and it is he who will complete it. Those who come to Christ as this father has in our text must come to him as he is. Not as our pride wishes him to be. You're not in the driver's seat of your story. No matter what modern evangelicalism or your theological tradition has told you. It is the dependent creature who cries out, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. We were reminded last week that true faith is constantly aware of how inadequate it is. That on this side of eternity, our belief is always going to be mixed with unbelief. Our faith is going to be mixed with our faithlessness. 
Everything we do is going to be tainted in some small way. There's always going to be that fly in the ointment where no action, no motive will ever be completely pure. And that does frustrate us as believers. That imperfection stands in opposition to the Holy Spirit within us. And yet we will never be completely rid of it until we go home to glory. That does not mean we are not growing in sanctification and holiness. It's not an excuse for sin. In fact, it drives the true believer just the other way. The Apostle Paul seems to capture this loathing when he bemoaned the wretched body that he lived in. We weary of sin and we desire to be holy as he is holy. This father does believe And now the presence of Jesus has made him see the unbelief which remains that is mixed in his soul and it causes him to cry out. And what a wonder it is that this father was able to merely speak about his son, about the agony of it, of the trials that had marked their life. Of that he could merely speak. But when it came to his faith and his unbelief, he had to cry out from the deepest recesses of his being, I do believe. Help my unbelief. So it is in the fight of faith. This gift of faith that we are to pick up and exercise. Today we will see how Jesus responds to the cry of faith, however imperfect. Which brings us finally to the climax of our exchange this morning. So with that, let's look at our text, Mark 9, 25 through 29. Mark, 20, Mark 9, 25 through 29. Now when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he stood up. And when he came into the house his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have a lesson to teach us today. Lord, you are shining a light on the inner recesses of our heart. You are throwing open the drapes that the sunlight might be shown on us. Lord, that is often difficult for us to look at. We ask for your grace to do that. And Lord, as we see the dirt that resides, we ask that we would rejoice in your mercy that you're extending even now. Holy Spirit, may the arrow find its mark. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, many have heard the term in their life, keep the main thing the main thing. Or perhaps don't major on the minors and minor on the majors, right? We're called to focus and to prioritize in so many different aspects of our life. 
You know, I'll walk by the schoolroom sometimes at home and, and I'll hear my wife encouraging Annalise or Elias to focus. Do what you came here to do. And there are always things and there are people that are jockeying for our attention and time, but we must keep the main things the main things. Christians, by definition, should be some of the most focused and prioritized people in the world because we live under a holy mandate. We've been giving marching orders in our life. Being focused or having our priorities right aren't just a matter of personal preference or a pursuit of success. For the Christian, it's a matter of obedience. And our Savior is ever obedient in his ministry on earth. He knew what he came to do, and he was ever about his Father's business. He never looked to the left or to the right, but had his eyes fixed toward Calvary and toward preparing the groundwork for his departure. And here we see this wonderful trait of our Savior that we are to emulate buried in our first verse. So let's begin here with verse 25. Verse 25. Now, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit. Pause there for a moment. What has prompted Jesus to move quickly and to take action on this demon possession? What prevented Jesus from staying and lingering in this wonderful conversation of faith with this father? Well, we've already seen Jesus' compassion and his desire to enter into this father's pain with him. But isn't there a sense in our text here that this conversation is cut short, isn't there? What does Mark show is the impetus or the catalyst this, that it's time to move? The priorities have changed. It was a rapidly gathering crowd. We see that? This tells us, this informs us and reminds us of Jesus' unwavering priorities. We have a few things we must remember. One, Jesus' public ministry is over at this point. It's over. His days of performing public miracles for the sake of the crowd are done. They have had their chance, and they by and large rejected Christ. Earlier in Mark, where Jesus took his journey through Gentile lands, through Decapolis, you remember that series, we were shown that the priorities have now shifted off of the crowd and onto the disciples. The time for the ministry to the thronging masses was over, and the time to pour into these 12 men had begun. Lanesville 2022. Why do you care about that? Because this is our model. Discipleship of others, pouring your life, your heart, your experience, your knowledge into those God joins to you. As believers, we ought to be both discipling and being discipled. It's a command. It's the pattern of our entire Lord's ministry. And here we see that take hold. The crowds are beginning to gather. The Greek here gives the sense of, of the crowd running together. They know something is about to go down. This kind of public demonstration is not why Jesus is here. Meaning it's time to move on and quickly. Jesus is on task. He's on focus. However much he may have desired to stay and minister to this man, to counsel and to console this man. 
He has to prepare his 12 because Calvary is coming. Calvary is coming. We are on the long march to Jerusalem as we speak with a motley group of men that still have no idea what awaits them. There is work to do. The needs of the crowd will always be there, but we are to stay focused. But it goes beyond merely needing to flee the crowd that's gathering. Why else did Jesus come? Simple question. Why did Jesus come? Well, we can give a lot of answers, and they would be part of the correct answer, but 1 John 3 8 tells us specifically why Christ came. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Prepare your disciples, not the crowd. March toward Calvary and destroy the works of the devil. Check, check on the first two. <laughs> How about the third? Is Jesus completely and totally on mission? You bet he is. Last part of verse 25. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Well, there's much to see here. First, we must see that Jesus is on message and he's on mission. Destroy the works of the devil. Check, check, and check. But let's dig a little bit into the theology and the mechanics of what's happening here. It's a treasure chest, as all of Scripture is. Well, all the synoptic Gospels tell us about the rebuke to the demon. But only Mark records Jesus' actual words. He wants us to focus there. Mark says that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. Well, the English doesn't quite give us enough here. In English, a rebuke can carry a whole range of implications or of severity. Here, our word epitimao, it's a strong rebuke. It's a command. It's a warning that carries with it a threat. We have to see the gravity of this. Jesus addresses this demon, you mute and deaf spirit, meaning I see you. I know what you've done to this boy. I know who you are. You're not hiding or fooling anyone. You're busted. Your jig is up. The next three words could preach themselves. I command you. This is not my disciples speaking. The JV squad that you just laughed at are benched right now. You're dealing with the son of God and you will remember me. I'm the one who banished you from heaven. You know exactly who I am and what authority I have. We've seen demonstrated throughout scripture. This just almost makes one cry. We have seen demonstrated throughout scripture better theology in demons than in our average American churchgoer. They know who Jesus is. What he came to do. They know the word. They know scripture. Not only do they have better theology, but at least the demons have the sense to quake and tremble at the sight of Christ. America can't be bothered to change out of their jammies for church. So watch this interaction. You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. So Jesus gives not one command, but two. Not only to come out of him, delivering the boy from this demonic stronghold, but do not enter him again. 
Jesus is protecting this boy forever and always. Now, tied up in this exorcism is a mountain of theological truths that we can glean about demons. But be careful of ditches here, beloved. Study of the demonic usually finds their way into one of two ditches in the American church. Either one, being overly fascinated with it, studying everything about it, being engrossed with the supernatural. They can tell me more about the activity of demons than the resurrection or the trinity. Or the second ditch, making no mention at all. Skipping over the demonic like they don't exist. They do exist. And they are enemies of God. But they are defeated enemies of God. Paul told the Colossians that Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities. And he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If we look at Jude 1.6, we see that some demons are already, quote, in darkness, bound with everlasting chains. While others are allowed to roam the earth, serving Satan and his desires, seeking to thwart God's plan and God's people. These are all theological truths. But what do we take away as believers concerning the demonic when we walk out the door this morning? Three things I would suggest. One... The demons serve as yet another witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Everywhere Jesus went, they were proclaiming who he was. They saw him, they knew him, they identified him, and they knew that his presence meant they were through, as in our text today. That's one. Two, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. James 4, 7. That's how powerless he is to the act of faith and obedience. Whom shall we fear? Finally, three, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Christ is the conqueror, the ruler. He has conquered, and he does rule today, right now. I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. It wasn't just the deliverance that was necessary, but protection in the future. We know from previous writing that this demon would come and go as he pleased from this, bo from, the, from this boy. The door needed to be closed. Matthew's gospel gives us insight into that process. Matthew 12, 43 through 45. No need to turn there, I'll read it for you. Matthew 12. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will also be with this evil generation. There is a whole sermon series in those, in the, in the, those verses there, but take away the warning. To those who would resist the conviction of their consciences who would shout down the still small voice, who would grieve the Holy Spirit again and again, eventually being given over to their desires and their lusts, searing the conscience irreparably. Their end will be worse than the first. The last state of that man becomes worse than the first. If you're in church today and you do not know Christ, you've not come in repentance and faith. If you leave here today in the same state you came, it would have been better if you had not come. 
To hear and reject only serves to further harden a heart. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart, but respond in repentance and faith. Back to our text, verse 26. What is the response of the demon to the command of Jesus? And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. Pause there. Oh, so much to see. The reaction is very common in demons. You may recall back in Mark 1, 23 through 27, the man in the synagogue at Capernaum was just about to be delivered from the unclean spirit when he made one last push to destroy its host. And recall, we spoke of Revelation 12, 12 last week, reflecting on the, the fierce anger of Satan because he knows his time is short. We often see Satan or the demonic make enormous efforts to hold on to the one they held captive. A sinner on the threshold of salvation that has been in the grasp of Satan is often not easily let go. Surround those people with prayer and put on the whole armor of God. If you were raised in a theological tradition where you bound Satan or you've heard that word said to bind Satan, please know, beloved, we have no instruction, no authority or example of this in Scripture. None. We're told to suit up in the armor of God. Jesus himself never binds Satan during his earthly ministry. Not anywhere. Think about it. Not anywhere. Indeed, if Christians all around the world are binding him, one must ask how he keeps getting out. Instead, John 1 tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We do see in 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 1.6 that we mentioned earlier, God binding demons to prevent them from harming people. But these demons are bound by God himself and they're being held for a purpose. We're going to see later in Revelation 9.14-15 that these demons are bound at this location until a specific time. And guess what God's going to do with them according to Scripture? They're not even permanently bound. God is going to release them and they're going to kill a third of the people on the earth. Satan and his demons do not move about outside of God's watchful and permissive eye. That serpent of old is on a chain, and he can't break it. The authority Satan has, that he has been given, and God is working out his will through it perfectly. For the Christian, Lanesville 2022, your orders for the demonic and for Satan, submit yourself to God. Hide under the wings of the Almighty. Resist the devil. Be a person of prayer. Have your armor of Ephesians 6 on. Let God deal with Satan. Follow the example of Scripture. Back to our text. The demon has come out of this boy after a, a very theatrical display. It usually is very theatrical, but the outcome was never in doubt. But what happens next is one of the linchpins in our text that's so easily missed. Look at this. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. After these violent seizures, the boy's body was stiff as a board. He looked dead. If you are the father, what are you thinking in this moment? A thousand thoughts are racing through your mind. I brought my boy to Jesus and his disciples for help, and now he's dead. 
Perhaps thinking in this moment, I was better off having never come to this Jesus. At least he was alive before I brought him. At every moment of faith, being birthed in a life, there is going to come a testing. There is going to come a fork in the road. When you are pressed, are you going to lean into this faith or are you going to abandon it? This father looks at his boy on the ground, looking like he is dead. And what is the cry of his heart in that moment? Is it still, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Or is it something else entirely? The moment the Lord does not do what we think he should do, what is the cry of our heart in that moment? It should be, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because I know that what you have done is right and good and perfect and righteous, righteous even though I can't see it right now. Could we say that if it meant the most awful of tragedies? His boy is laying there as dead. This man thought he had done everything he was supposed to do. He came in faith. He came to the right person. The object of his worship is correct. He saw the kind heart of the Savior, and here now his boy appears dead. Real faith produces a testing for authenticity. How many come toward Christ because they were told a false gospel? That Jesus came to give you a better life. That he came to make you healthy or wealthy. Your life's not working out? Hey, try Jesus. And when they get what the Bible says they will get, persecution and hardship, they'll throw off the supposed fraud called Christianity because it didn't work. Where's my better life? My boy's dead on the floor. What did this father think in that moment of testing? We aren't told. We don't know. What we are shown is that a testing of faith is coming for us all as Christians. 1 Peter 1.7 So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't want the fire. My flesh doesn't desire the refiner's fire. It hurts, and I pray God be merciful with it. But as it is applied, as your metal is being tested and purified, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. Oh, the glory of this. I believe this father did dig into his faith. See the beauty of this. I'm not only going to deliver your son, but if we look at Luke's account of this in Luke 9, Jesus healed the boy and delivered him to his father. Jesus could have prevented the demon from convulsing the child, but he didn't. He didn't. He gave an opportunity for the testing of this father's faith and a further demonstration of his love and his power. Every one of us would rather have not seen our child convulse with the world's worst seizure and lie looking dead on the ground. How awful. 
But what is the result of a faith refined in fire? What if that meant seeing a greater measure of the love and the glory and the power of your Savior? Verse 27. What happens? Verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he stood up. The Lord's deliverance and healing is complete. It is thorough. The demon can never return. The boy's body is made whole. Not just from this latest convulsion. I'm sure Jesus restored him in body, mind, and soul. Jesus never heals and saves halfway. He goes all the way. And all the while, we've been swimming in the depths of this amazing scene. There's been a group of men watching. One that have had their heads buried in shame at the beginning of our series. Ones who needed to be taught. Ones who had tried to go at their ministry labors under their own steam. Our 12 disciples. They have been in the background this entire time. We often forget them. And yet as we complete our scene, we're reminded that the teaching of these men is the very purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry at this point. On message, on mission. They're not an afterthought. Jesus is laying the groundwork for his, for his departure. And these men were going to be tried by fire. There were things they needed to know. The lesson of this scene were many. Now seeing that the budding faith of this father was enough, as you go out into this world, disciples, you are not going to see giants in the faith. You're going to see tender green shoots of faith. Know how to see that. Recognize that. Don't despise a weak or a new faith. It is enough. Now, we won't get into a faith the size of a mustard seed. That's for another day. No time left. You know, often back in flight training as a, a new student pilot or learning to fly a new airplane, when you would finish the flight, you and the instructor would go sit down and you would debrief the flight. What went well and what didn't go well? That's part of learning. And some say the debrief is as important as the lesson itself. Well, here as we close our scene, like a good instructor, like a good teacher, Jesus gives a debrief. Back to our final text, verses 28 and 29. I'll read them as one. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Beloved, if you'll think back over our three-part series, you'll see that we have spent the entire time teaching and explaining the very question that the disciples are posing here. And not only that, but the explanation given by the master. One theologian writes, quote, prayer is faith turned to God. The life we are called to live as Christians cannot be lived under our own steam. We are called to an impossible task that requires a dependence upon Jesus to accomplish. We are inadequate to the task. And with the richest and most beautiful irony of that being that the more we grow in Christ, the sense of our inadequacy only grows along with it. That's part of the Christian walk. 
That was the reality for the father in our text. A realization that our belief is mixed with our unbelief causes a guttural cry in our spirit. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I have seen the Lord of glory, and I am an unclean man. My faith is but a little. I have but a little green shoot. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The faith of this father, our faith here this morning, which exposes our inadequacy in light of the task at hand, in light of the glory of his majesty, it is meant to drive us to prayer. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this series this morning on the faith of a father, Lord, the series was titled after him, but he is not the focus. You are. You are always the focus. Your compassion, your mercy, your kindness, your patience with us, Lord, your power over all unclean. Heavenly Father, we have seen every attribute of yours on mighty display this morning. We ask that this message would go down deep as we consider these great truths. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.